Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Guys, it's our final episode of the year, number 75. Woohoo! So, I started this podcast back in 2017 after being inspired listening to the first season of Serial, which is the most downloaded podcast of all time. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. I could not think of a better guest to round out this year than the person that brought that story to light, Rabia Choudhury. Rabia is a Pakistani-American attorney, author, and podcast host. She is a childhood friend of Anan Syed, the subject of the podcast Serial, and she wrote a book about his case called Anan's Story, The Search for Truth and Justice After Serial, which became a New York Times bestseller. Jodhri co-hosts three podcasts, Undisclosed, a podcast on Syed's case, and many others, which has now 360 million downloads, the 45th, which followed the crazy that was Trump's presidency, and the hidden jinn, showcasing the folklore and history behind the legends of the jinn and connecting the tales through Islamic, Christian, and Jewish sources. She's also an executive producer of a four-part HBO documentary, The Case Against Anand Syed, which is fantastic. She has so many other accolades that we get into, and needless to say, we had a lot to talk about, including her own journey, of course, a non-science case, and where it is now. I feel like there may be a two-parter to this interview. So please enjoy my super fantastic and interesting final episode of 2021 with Rabia Choudhury. Okay, let's just start with the with the childhood story really quick. So sure. um, I'm obviously going to ask you about Adnan Syed a little bit, but yep. more so kind of looking back at stuff now. I know I've researched you and I'm like, God, like, I wonder, not in a negative way, but if you're ever tired about talking about it. Um, Even I'm though not, he's a family I'm friend, right? Tired, yeah, I'm not tired about talking about it. I'm just tired of it. Right. I mean, it's unconscionable. You know what? I just, I want to... The only people I've ever wanted to wreak violence against are the people involved in keeping him locked up. <laughs> and just Understandably. Like, what the actual fuck is wrong with you people? That's, that's right. how I feel. But um, that's what I'm tired of. Got it. Okay. Well, we'll get to it. I want to get to know you a little bit. So you say you have no hometown, but where were you born? Uh, you know, I was born in Lahore, Pakistan. My, when, my, when we moved to the U.S., I was around a year old. Okay. So I was raised here. We landed in Virginia, but my dad worked for the U.S. Um, Department of Agriculture. Okay. And so we just kind of moved around like every couple of years and we'd be in these small rural towns. Like we were out in Lancaster County, Amish country. We were in Kansas for a bit, Delaware. I mean, like all over the place. We finally kind of like got settled in um, Western Maryland total, like um, out in the country area when I was in middle school and stayed there until high school then I went to university close to Baltimore. That was like my first time in the big city. Um, was it then, University of Maryland? Yeah, yeah, University of Maryland, but but not the College Park campus, which is Got huge. It. But this yeah. is um, a smaller campus that's a science-focused campus because like all DCs my age, we I was pre-med as well. Good for you. Failed so doctor. was I. So was I till I got a C in organic chemistry. And then I was like, <laughs> well... Maybe not. <laughs> I, honestly, I feel like we could start something like some kind of organization for all us failed, <laughs> failed, disappointed, you know, failed doctors that disappointed their parents. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got married while I was in college. My last year moved to Virginia. And then since then, I've been kind of circling the beltway other than a little stint in Connecticut for six years, like I said. Got so, it. Okay. Yeah. So super quick, because you got married young. Was this a typical brown house, got to get married soon kind of plan or was was this, were you guys dating or? Um, no, I met him and I mean, he was, he was a brown guy from back yeah. home. Um, his family was, he was just here with uh, his brother. They were studying at American universities. So I met him like in college right. and frankly, my parents were like, 
I come from a family where like they're, you're expected to get a graduate degree. They're like, what the hell are you talking about? You're not getting married. You got to graduate. You got to like go on and become a professional. So there actually wasn't pressure, but I was in that, like, I'm in love. I want to get married. Disastrous marriage. First marriage um, okay. lasted five years. Abuse. You must've been terrible. what? 19, 19 years old. I was 19 when I met him. 21 when we got married, 22 when I had my eldest. So I was like a baby. Okay. Um, right before law school, I had her and, um, yeah, so I was out of there in five years. And you said it was terrible, abusive, all that stuff. Yeah, you know, okay. as soon as we, even before before we got, like we had just gotten engaged, or we gotten engaged and his entire family came over for the wedding, but then they never left. And they were very traditional. And it was like, it's going to be a joint family system. So at one point we're living in a three bedroom apartment with like 10 people and I am the eldest bahu. I'm the eldest mm-hmm. daughter-in-law. I have no idea what this even means because I didn't grow up around a lot of family or Pakistani people. Right. But all those ex- expectations were there. Uh, mother and right. father-in-law, you're going to cook. We don't care if you go to law school, but you are responsible for cooking two meals a day for 10 people. And then I had, had a baby. I mean, it was bad. And my husband was, um, you know, my ex-husband, he, he was abusive. Oh, and uh, he, and I, you know, it's one of those things where you you're so naive you don't know how cycles work because i had never seen it in my own family right and when we were just dating he had told me how his father was really physically abusive to his mother and i always used to feel really sympathetic not understanding that oh shit this is a red flag (laughs) right (laughs) right he's grown up with this and he's probably gonna like mimic this act this Um, out yeah yeah and then that's kind of what happened so that's super difficult at that age being thrown into that, having a kid, uh, straight up, how did you have the courage to get out of that? Honestly, law school was the only thing that gave me hope. I was okay. like, that is my, and, and you know, and I was raised like that, that education gives you opportunities. And I thought, I just want got to do one day at a time. My schedules were insane um, in those years. And I was like, just just get through law school. Just get through law school and that'll right. be your freedom one way or the other. Whether you stay, whether you leave, you'll just... But, you know, being in law school as a woman who grew up in the United States, think, never having experienced DV in her own home, feeling very like, you know, kind of like... And my mother is like a real badass. So I come from this family of like strong women, never imagining that I could find myself in this situation. And And then again, being in law school, you're going to law school and at home... You're it's like a different life. It's a, yeah, it's a whole different. It's it was really crazy, and I it, there was so much shame, obviously, which happens. I can talk about it all these years later, but I didn't not I didn't tell my sister, my best friends, my family. I couldn't tell anybody what was happening. I was so full of shame. Yeah, and it's you probably look back also, and are probably wondering like psychologically, you know, kind of subconsciously, how you would end up in that situation when you grew up grew up around such a different family environment. It's not like you grew up in that kind of environment or surrounded by it, or it's just probably like, how did that, you know, how does that happen? Well, we all think, and that was my first lesson in, in learning that you never know what you're going to do in a situation. We all think, Oh, if a man hit me, I would leave. Or if somebody cheated on me, I would leave. Hmm. And people don't No, like, and you know, and, and he did, he cheated on me. He beat me. And the thing is, the interesting thing is, I think, that I went on outside of law school to do a lot of work with uh, around VAWA, which is Violence Against Women's Act, working with a lot of immigrant women who were victims or survivors, depending on where they were uh, in the stage of their life, um, and com- and being able to understand why they couldn't leave. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it kind of totally. positioned me to get it. To get um, it, right. Yeah, Otherwise, it. you keep on... It, 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 you do wonder why aren't you getting out? Yeah. Um, I don't have the exact same story at all by any means. Yeah, I didn't realize I had been uh, with my first boyfriend till mm. like now, 20 years later. It hit me. Wow. It's so weird. And it was emotional abuse. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know it then. I just knew something was off. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I was yeah. actually in an abusive relationship. And so many w- women and friends my age hitting their 40s, can now look back and realize that, you know, cause it's the physical abuse is obvious, right? You know, 
you you have to get to a certain level of maturity before you can even understand like what's really happening around you. Yeah. You know, we don't, and a lot of us didn't even have the language 20 years ago, 25 years ago to know is that what, what gaslighting in is and what all this, what's really happening, understanding cycles of abuse and trauma and all these things. Like it took adulthood, like, you know, like probably the last five, six years for me to understand all these things. There's no right. way I would have understood that like in my teens. Right, right. Uh, and it's sadly so many women aren't able to get out, right? Yeah. And and have to live with it. So law school, you've had a child, um, and you thankfully were able to get out of the situation. Where where did you go next? What was the next step? Um, I was a single mom for four years and okay. I started practicing law. I stayed with my family for about a year after I separated, you know, just so I could kind of get myself yeah. together and figure out. Uh and then I so I stayed with them in Maryland for about a year. Then I moved back to Northern Virginia, which is where I went to law school and had, had been married. Um, and I practiced law and then I met another guy. <laughs> Good for you. And, and uh, we got married and that's when we moved to Connecticut. Actually, my husband was studying at the Hartford seminary and okay. um, he's a chaplain along with being an IT professional. Of course. Um, of course. We're all brown. It yeah. happens. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so we've been married for about 16 years now uh, awesome. and, 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 and we have two kids together. So. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. And I have to ask, because we all are Pakistani Indian, how did your parents feel about everything? Because, you know, our, obviously all our parents, the, the divorce thing scares them. How did yeah. your parents deal with it? You know, my, my dad is like, is, it has, has always been a rock throughout my life. And he's been the most steady male presence in my life. So for my dad, right. any time in my life, and obviously even in my second marriage, you have ups and downs. Every time in my life, there I've been in a tough place. My dad's like, you can come home anytime. My mother, however, is the one who's just like, oh no, 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 no. A woman doesn't leave her home. You don't leave your home until like you're dead. So you got to work this out. And you know, when I separated from my first husband and then we were going through the divorce, she continued to tell people for, I think at least a year or two that I was actually still married. Like she, she it's wouldn't funny, tell people. Huh? Yeah. So she would just tell people, oh yeah, Robbie is just here because she's working here or she's doing something here. Like she wouldn't, it was too hard for her to admit it. Right. Things are very different now. And honestly, to be, you know, to be fair to her, this was a time in which I didn't even know anybody who was divorced. I didn't know anybody in our community who was divorced, you know? Right. right. Uh, unfortunately, it's much more common now, but this, we're talking about 2000, 2000. Yeah. I think so. even in our own community, I mean, that was, it just wasn't happening or definitely wasn't you've talked about for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it wasn't as common. And like you said, it's it's happening more and more for better or for worse. Yeah, you know, what, yeah whatever yeah. the reasons may be. I mean, so again, I you know I researched you last night. And I'm like, man, this girl has done a lot of shit. Like <laughs> you are. So let me break this down. So you you practice law. Your focus was asylum, family immigration, civil rights defense of Muslim immigrants against federal law enforcement agencies. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you you were doing that. Did you have your own practice? Um, I not initially. Um, okay. I was work. I worked at uh, two different firms in Virginia before I moved to Connecticut, where I kind of had to start my own practice because, uh, shockingly, there wasn't a huge immig- immigrant community in the middle of Connecticut um, that needed. Crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. So there weren't any firms really hiring around that. So I was like, you know, I had enough experience at that point. And I was I was comfortable going out on my own. Okay. And um, and I started my own practice in Connecticut. So yeah. For how was years. that versus it was fine with, yeah. it, and I, it wasn't a full-time practice at the time I had had a, I had uh, my husband and my second husband and I had our first baby he is a, is an IT consultant so he's travel a lot so I needed to, a lot of flexibility but you know I had my right. little office and I um word got around that there's a Muslim lawyer in the community which was also rare and so uh believe it or not I mean there's a sizable Muslim community in Connecticut a bunch of mosques there is I'm sure yeah Yeah. and brown people like to go to brown people so um you know I had my my share of clientele and I well there's a trust right there's a trust there's language you know I can speak Urdu and Hindi fine uh, so there's the language stuff and I always focused on quantity quality over quantity I've I will take less cases to make sure they're done right versus take more cases. So it was good. It, you know, it, it worked perfectly for my life at that time. So then by this time, are your parents over the fact that you're not a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this. When I told them I was going to go to law, law school, it was like I had stabbed my entire family <laughs> through the heart because lawyers are really disrespected. They, they have no respect back home. You know how right. it is? Like same as same in India. Yeah. It's right. cons- it's like if one of my uncles I remember it's said like a to real me, estate agent. <laughs> I mean 
maybe even less. I mean, one of my uncles said to me, I remember when I said I'm going to law school, he was like, you know, in Pakistan, if you can't get into anything else, like you go to law, like if you have failed at everything, you end up in law school. And I was like, okay, that's Pakistan. That's not America. And it's different here. And you take the bar, then call me. (laughs) Right. Right. Or or try to get into law school. Yeah, that too. Yeah, that too. And the truth is, I it wasn't until 9-11 that suddenly the, everybody understood the value of it. They're like, crap, we need a lawyer. We need lawyers. Um, and there weren't as many. You know, we there, now there's plenty of South Asian, um, uh, you know, Pakistani and Muslim lawyers and South Asian right. lawyers. But really at that time, it was mostly kids going into med- medicine and engineering, business even, uh, IT. I, I just didn't know. I didn't know yeah. a single other lawyer at the time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the the route that everyone was taking at the yeah. time. I mean, nowadays everyone's like, "Oh, we'll become Instagram stars." So yeah, okay. So then you tra- you you started in 2011 the CBE thing, right? Yeah, Is that, did, did I get that right? That's right. Um, okay, yeah. so and that count that stands for countering violent extremism, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. Tell me about that. Cause I don't know any, it's called the safe nation collaborative. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. That, okay. that tell was a, that. yeah, that was a firm that I founded. It, we worked for three years with law enforcement agencies and, and local Muslim communities. Basically what happened when I, when I was practicing uh, immigration law, it was on, I mean, really right after nine 11, this it began happening where, you know, Muslim communities are being surveyed. They're being rounded up. Um, any any immigrant who had any kind of process in place or was expecting to go through the immigration process was vulnerable to being pressured by federal right. law enforcement to become informants. And it was crazy. I'm like, this is Connecticut. But I was getting calls from, from people all over the state saying that, you know, uh, agents from the Joint Terrorism Task Force have visited me. They want me to come in. One imam who was one of my clients disappeared for like 12 hours one day because they picked him up and took him. And it was, uh, and, and around 2009, what happened was all this reporting came out in the news about the kinds of training that law enforcement was getting Homeland security officials, federal law enforcement, local, that they were getting like some really horrific Islamophobic anti-Muslim training. And then they take that training and they'd go out and create all these programs around it or their strategies around it, uh, which were, I mean, you might have heard of the widespread um, surveillance of, I think it was NYU's Muslim Student Association. Like they spent years, like, and they even embedded with them. And there was, it was just a waste of time and money because nothing came of it. Who started this training? Like, who led this training and who was getting the training? Well, here, well, here's what happened. Well, who was getting this training was federal law enforcement. Um, FBI was getting it. Local law enforcement was getting it. Homeland Security officials were getting it. Um, because suddenly after 9-11, the concern was, do we have jihadis in our midst? Yeah. Are, are American Muslims a fifth column in this country, right? Right, right. And, um, and how do we, you know, it's, it's not as if we were ever kind of like part of the fabric, but we were kind of like this non-entity. Like nobody was really too worried about us. Fine. There was the first World Trade Center bombing. There were blips in time. But suddenly 9-11 said, after 9-11, like the gloves came off. Right. It was like, these are all potential enemies. And there was one training, an FBI training, where the video leaked. And um, the trainer was saying to this, you know, huge audience of FBI um, agents that, and he picked up the Quran, which is our holy scripture, and he's shaking it around. And he's like, this is a handbook for terror. And that's when I really, then I started doing some digging. I'm like, who's doing the trainings? And, you know, these training firms made hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions, because there was this void. There was just like this void and there was nobody filling the void. And that's when I realized that there, and Muslim communities were like, what do we do? What do we do? Oh fuck. What do we do? Yeah. Uncle so-and-so at the local mosque would be like, we can do a diversity training. You know what I mean? It was completely ad hoc, unprofessional, unorganized. Right. So what I was, what I did was I spent about a year researching like what's really happening on the training front trying to understand how national security policy is created, what are all the mechanisms I applied for and got into the national, um, the Truman National Security Project, which is a fantastic fellowship. I learned a lot about, yeah, I had never worked in policy. Speaking of fellowships, Rabia, like I couldn't even keep track of how many fellowships. Listen, <laughs> I, I was like, God, I, I, I can't even list all. Anyways, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, I highly recommend fellowships. They, they are 
excellent and for so many reasons. Yeah, um, it's amazing. Yeah. Aspen you, Institute. Anyways, we'll get to yeah. that, but continue. So once I realized that there was just nothing in place to fill this void, um, I started the Safe Nation Collaborative. And um, and this was when the Obama administration had come in. And there was yep. a sh- suddenly a shift. And the, what the Obama administration recognized was that we cannot treat these communities um, through a counter-terror lens. We have to, like, be there to be, like, as partners to say we want to keep your community safe, too. Because, obviously, if something happens at a mosque or some kid gets recruited from some community and he's flies to wherever, you know, right. to Syria or some shit, it impacts the entire community, you know, yeah. lots of innocent people. So they came up with this construct called CVE, Countering Violent Extremism, which was nothing okay. but nothing but this framework that c- was filled with all kinds of things, some good things, some bad things, some dumb ideas, some great ideas, right. um, but it couldn't Which operate. makes sense when you're starting off, right? You know, people think the government has everything planned out. They don't know anything they're doing. <laughs> They just don't know. <laughs> They're like, how? Ooh, here's an idea. Yeah, yeah. Help us figure this out. And what happened was the community didn't want to figure it out. The community's like, we don't want to be engaged in any of this at all. Right. Which I think is a double-edged sword. So, you know, CV kind of fizzled out. But I, in the interim, we we were able to deliver. I had a team of trainers deliver uh, trainings to about 1,500 um, police, local, uh, and correctional officers and some FBI trainings as well. And mo- it's bas- it was basically like kind of diversity training and like you need to know like the local mosque, the local Muslims are part of your community. Their kids right. are going to school. You need with your to kids. get them involved, like yeah. to help. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and then we would have community trainings in, in okay. terms of like explaining what is the law enforcement structure in this country? What are the different right. agencies? Who do you want to work with? And who do you want to be like, pick up a, a phone and call a lawyer when they show up? Right, you know? right, so right. So that's what that was about. That lasted a few years. And then serial happened. And derailed ah, yeah. We've all heard of that. Let's let's jump into it super quick. So sure. obviously, like everyone else in the whole wide world, I listened to it. It's actually yeah. why I started podcasting. So mm-hmm. you're kind of to thank for my Serial podcasting career. Launched I, a thousand million podcast ships. I, I think you launched podcasting. <laughs> I mean, I know it started yeah. before Serial. Yeah, yeah. But um, it started. Nobody yeah. took it as seriously. Yeah, definitely. No, that yeah. that definitely launched. A billion podcasts for sure. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard many times how riveting it, it was. I've read some of your articles on your take on it, looking back and kind of things you wish had happened, things that, you know, you wish didn't happen. I think the one thing I took away from from one of your quotes, you said one of the best things that came out of the serial was questions on religious and ethnic bias, mm. police manipulation, reasonable doubt, you know. An ineffective assistance of counsel, which was very obvious, juvenile detention. So all these things that happened to, uh, that, that happened to Anon, you know, at least came out to light. Sure. You know, which it might not have if it weren't for the podcast. Yeah. Now I probably, I asked you about this a little earlier, uh, but just to kind of reiterate, you've talked about this I'm many, many times. How do you feel about it now? The yeah. case and, and the podcast, I guess. Look, I mean, like, when it comes to Serial, um, because Serial was kind of the first of its kind, maybe I should be kinder about it. <laughs> but Serial did an incredible job bringing exposure to this case. But seven years later, Adnan is still in prison. Right. And in the aftermath of Serial, there have been many incredible podcast productions from journalists who have actually had an impact, like literally within a year of their show or whatever, like their defendants are home. I've seen this at Curtis Flowers recently, um, you know, two defendants who were convicted of killing Malcolm X of all people have just been like exonerated and released because of a documentary. The point is that I don't agree with this idea of like, we're going in as a kind of this neutral maybe and, or no, your job as a journalist is to figure it out. Right. And if you don't figure it out, then maybe you don't do the story. And so the ambiguity that Serial left in its wake, and also some things they just got outright wrong, we have spent seven years trying to clear those muddy waters. Right. And if Serial had taken a stance, we wouldn't be here. Got but it. but it served Serial 
on one hand, I think it, it was a, it served serial to be like, did he or didn't he? Is he an absolutely wonderful person, a complete psychopath? I mean, come on. They didn't defer. They didn't give deference to people who are professional um, professionals in the space of innocence work, right? right? Like they didn't give deference to our community when we were like, there was so much religious and ethnic bias in this trial right? and in this entire thing. And, you know, the Sarah Kenning's response was like, well, are you what? Maybe, I don't know. Those were things that were incredibly frustrating. It was not a pleasant experience for us, Serial, to go through it. It was Got extremely it. stressful. For you and for Anand's family, I assume. Of course it was. Right. Right. I mean, and the truth is, I felt, and I still feel heavily responsible because I convinced them that this could be the way you know, out. Now, having said that, <laughs> I was forced to launch Undisclosed really as a response to Serial. And in the interim, my team has helped to bring home like 12 defendants. Right. And so, you know, I guess the upshot is, well, you know, Serial didn't do what really they should have done. And they've mm-hmm. never corrected some of the things that they got wrong on the record. But if it wasn't for that, Undisclosed wouldn't have happened. Right. So, so quick question on the way Serial approached it and, and, you know, Sarah as a host, do you think because it was the first of its kind, they maybe weren't able to take a stance out of kind of fear of backlash? Was Do you think they were just trying to be as neutral as possible for journalistic integrity? I mean, there, there are, you're not... Being a reporter is one thing, right? When right. you're just reporting something. Right. But this was an investigative podcast. When you are doing investigative journalism, right. investigative journalism by by in, by its nature means you're taking a stance. Right. Right. You don't you're do right. an investigation and say, oh, yeah, I know. Most, uh, yeah, you're right. Most podcasts that I listen to now that are true crime or investigative, yeah. there's some sort of yeah, and it's some not sort even of now. Look. That's how journalism has always been, right? right I right, mean, I don't right. care if you talk about the Watergate, like throughout history, that that's mm-hmm. how journalism. You have reporting, which is we're right. just reporting the facts, we're not taking a stand, and then you have investigative journalism, which is a different beast. So right. you cannot call this an you you can call it an attempt at of investigative journalism, but it was an attempt that they made without having, let's say, a criminal or, or post conviction attorney working with them, without Got having it. a professional criminal investigator working with them. It's Sarah and her producer driving around trying to figure out, could he have done that's to me, like even as an attorney, and now I've worked on 20 odd innocence cases. I pick up the phone and call a forensic examiner when right. I don't know something. I don't right. just try to figure shit. You know, there are shit experts out, yeah. who are doing this, you know, yeah. you, you have to, that's not your role. That's not your role. On it's this. not my yeah. role. And I, right. and I, and I'm not qualified to, um, opine on certain things but there are i mean she talked to deirdre enright during the series who was the executive director of the innocence project and deirdre was like this case has every hallmark possible of like innocence. Totally. and sarah and this is a woman who's been doing this for 30 years or 20 years and sarah kidding is like mm, really you know come mm. on I, I i to me it's like people who doubt dr fauci right it's like w- what level of self-confidence and almost ignorant arrogance do you have to say i don't I'm going to completely discount your experience and skills um, right. and knowledge around this and just yeah. prioritize my own, my own feelings about my own, know. my own fake news. Right. Yeah. And then there's another element and this is one that's not as well known is that there was a little bit of a difference between the public persona and what was actually happening behind the scenes. Sarah took her kids to meet Adnan in prison. Okay. Sarah's son, or I, I think it was her son was like, had become like a little pen pal. It was like, right. If Sarah really thought he was a psychopathic murderer, she wouldn't do that. You know? Right. Like, so I felt like, and it was so confusing for us. It was confusing for Adnan. We didn't know how to handle the situation where in public, it's one thing, but privately she was like befriending him, you know, um, not just her, but her family. Have you ever been able to speak to her about any of this? Honestly, she got really upset when we were doing, when we went up, well, Undisclosed came a few months later after Serial ended, right. but um, I was blogging at the same yeah. time as Serial, and she was yeah. just like, even upset about that. But um, no, we have not. She, I mean, they, they're a little thin-skinned, but you know, when somebody come, walks in, not just, it wasn't just our podcast. There were three or four other, there, there were other shows that also came in, investigative shows, and said, okay, this is wrong. And so when your work's kind of been 
questioned over but the and right over. thing to yeah. do was to say you know i mean like I, i'm in the middle of a series right now for undisclosed right. for a case right. at the very in the very first episode i said these are the phone records of the suspect this is what we know except i myself completely missed a different set of phone records i didn't know they exi- i didn't i did not review them properly i thought they were the same records they were different records so in two two weeks ago in an episode i said i got this wrong yeah. We actually, the, what I said about us not having local calls, we have them, except I messed up. That's integrity, right? Right, like, right, totally. You have yeah. to now. I mean, otherwise, yeah. uh, people aren't going to trust you and your story. Yeah. So, and your, what you're investigating. Yeah. Really. Uh, one day, I hope that they'll say, okay, we just want to correct the record. Uh, we got a couple things wrong. But, yeah. you know, maybe it's too late now and nobody cares anymore because. I think people still care. I think it was such a big. Yeah. I mean, everyone heard it. People yeah. really emotionally connected with it. Yeah. People are still I mean, discovering Serial. And what's crazy is that, you know, Serial's audience, they were nearing almost a billion downloads the last time I checked. A billion, okay? I'm not surprised. And and Undisclosed has maybe about, we have about 400 million. Yeah. Which means that's another 600 million that have have no idea what happened other than Serial. And um, th- to me, it's like, we, we'll never have the audience that Serial has, obviously. So they have the power to... to correct the record much more than we do. Um, anyway, you never it is, know, it is. Rabia. You never know, you know? No, I know. I, I think keep, keep, you know, you are speaking about it and talking about it. No, I think it's in the rear view and now, and it's, and I, I'm grateful that Serial, if nothing else, millions of people walked away from Serial saying that wasn't, we need to know more. It wasn't enough. Like this is. Everyone yeah. done. Yeah. Everyone, I wouldn't end it. Yeah. I was like, what the F? Like yeah. what? It was very more. unsatisfying. I know that's ridiculous talking yeah. about someone's life, but. No, no, as no. A, but you're right. It was. It was just like, what is this? This is yeah. so frustrating. So, and I think for a lot of those people, when they started digging deeper, they realized that um, how systematic these issue issues, like people started caring about like the large, the broader issues, um, which I thought was great. Yeah. I think one of the articles I, I saw uh, on your site was about how serial made Muslims more human or something. I don't know what the title was exactly. Sure, humanized but like, humanized yeah. Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It definitely did. Yeah. How is he doing now? How's Adnan doing? <sighs> He's okay. Look, it's, um, Adnan's mother was diagnosed with cancer a couple years ago and yeah. it's stage four right now. His father got COVID. He's in his late eighties. He's not doing great. So Adnan is doing as well as any human being can do in those circumstances. Um, we're still working day and night behind this, you know, obviously not in public view to get him home soon. Yeah. I, I still have hope that uh, it will be in the next year or so that we can get him home. But, you know, we were very close to getting him exonerated a couple of years ago. And yeah. then we won two appeals. And on the third appeal, on the third appeal, we lost, um, we lost at the highest level of appeal in Maryland. And it was like seven judges and it was a four to three decision. So that was heartbreaking. Uh, uh, it was traumatic. I mean, yeah. for everybody. I mean, like I had to actually walk away from the whole thing for like four or five months and a non in my life. In all these years, I never heard him weep until that happened. Never. He, the man's never cried. He just always is like, just, you know, because he's always like, I'm fine. I'm, like, he just never wants you to know. I'm sure he's had many horrible moments, but he never wants his loved ones to know he's in pain. But he wept and his beard literally turned gray, like in a matter of weeks. Um, he lost like 40 pounds in a month. It was traumatic. And that's what this system does to people. Yeah. Breaks them down. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, But I, I, you know, it's amazing that he has someone like you and his community on his side um, fighting for him. He's got a lot of great people now. We have an incredible team. Yeah. We have, we have a, he's had a new attorney um, who had to, she had to take over the case a couple of years ago because you can't, once you reach that level of appeal, you kind of had to switch to a new and and she's, she's amazing. And I can't wait till we're finally at the point where we can publicly share everything that's been going on. And right. Right. And you don't have to answer this and I can totally edit it out. The reason why I'm asking you, because I was, again, researching and, and saw one of your interviews and I know your answer back then, so this is 2015. I'm just going to ask you again, tell me yes, no, I don't want to answer. You know this case in and out, inside and out, you know everything about it. Do you still have any idea what happened to, to Heyman Lee? 
I have a theory. I have a strong theory. Are and, you allowed to share that? Yeah, yeah, I can share that theory. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think I, I even wrote about that theory in the final chapter of the book. And the book is Adnan's Story, which yeah. is a New York Times bestselling book. Yeah. And I also did watch the HBO documentary. Oh, good. Good, good. The case against Anand Syed, which yeah. everyone needs to watch. Yeah, it's a fantastic. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Amy Berg did an incredible job. Yeah, my theory is that Heyman, there are certain things that were missing from her when they found her. One of the things that was missing was her pager. To me, that's a sign that the pager is missing because there's something incriminating on that pager. And also, there she had said to somebody at school that day that something has come up and I have to I have to run. You know, this is before cell phones. So there's something that came up we think was likely a page. Um, I think she was paged to meet somebody. She went to meet somebody she knew. I think she was killed by somebody she knew. If I had the ability to reopen this investigation, I would start with her boyfriend at the time, Donald Kleindest. I'm not saying he's guilty. I'm saying he is. uh, uh, Maybe knows more. Well, I... He has not ever accounted for his time on during the time she disappeared and was killed. Um, there are just too many outstanding questions. The man's never been fingerprinted. I mean, like the, the fact that you've got a, mur- a murder and the, if you're going to look at like the people closest to the victim, which is what you do, you're not even a fingerprint, the boyfriend, no DNA samples have been taken from him, nothing. And so, you have to, at a minimum, try to eliminate him as a suspect, right? right? Like, right. So I, that's where I would start. Having said that, um, there's all this outstanding DNA that has been tested in her case, including a rape kit that was taken from her. So, you know... Um, and that hasn't been tested. It's never been DNA tested. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I don't... Uh, oh God, okay, we can talk about this way more, but I just, I don't understand. This is crazy. Like, yeah, how many things can go wrong? Yeah, yeah. There's right? all this outstanding stuff that has not been resolved in her case. And if we had this, for um, like, I'll give you another example. Um, the whatever there was a there was a, a reward paid out. We have no idea. The state won't tell us who got the reward. You know, I mean, like that could fill a gap, right? Like that could be Brady material that could. Who get gave him. the reward? Who collected the, the money? Um, it's called. Uh, oh my god, what's it? Crime Stoppers. It's a. It's like this quasi legal entity right. that works with law enforcement. Um, right. And they had but the reward. We know that one of the detectives in the case physically handed that person the cash. Um, they won't. They just, they just won't tell us who that person is. That's if it so was a state, yeah, If it was a state's lead witness, that's Brady evidence that you know. And there's a reason they're hiding it, right? So there's all these unresolved questions. We don't have a nonsense coming phone records, right? Like his cell record. It's yeah. like so all these phone calls they say he made from Best Buy, this and that. Right. Right. You're making these allegations, but literally you don't have any records. Any records of it. Yeah. Right. So it's, we don't even know if the pay phone exists. <laughs> yeah, this was crazy. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. So I, I always want to wrap this up because I'm sure we can talk about this forever. I just want to wrap it up by, you know, I think you mentioned that you still have hope that maybe even within the next year or something could happen. Oh yeah. Listen, I'm never not going to have hope. Yeah. I, right. I, and I'm never going to stop until he's home. I mean, like me and the team, you know, the free Adnan team is working on his, for his advocacy, for his fundraising, for his legal stuff. We are, I mean, that's the difference between us and the state um, that, you know, people in the state, the prosecutors will come and go, we're not going anywhere. Right. You're, you're more than just his legal team. You're his, yeah. you're his family. Right. Yeah. So actually yeah, one more question. How have you dealt with all the haters? Oh, you know, I learned my lesson. I spent okay. maybe the first six, seven months like trying to respond to people and like, you know, like there's haters, there's guilters, there's all kinds of people. And I was like, what am I? I literally was like getting physically sick. I was wasting yeah. time. Yeah. I'm spending time looking for evidence to prove. And then I realized that what they want to do is keep you wrapped Locking up. Down. Mm-hmm. That's what trolls do. Keep you bogged mm-hmm. down in bullshit. So you right. can't actually do your work. And it's... I I did a series of blocking and I'm done. Like I I'm fine now. And I I don't I don't have time for it, man. That could just suck your energy out. You can yeah. like spend the whole. You can spend yeah, years yeah. on that stuff. That's how social media works. And the right. other thing I realized, um, and actually I remember I put this in the book because I it was like this. It's it is it's gonna always be painful to Adnan. 
then there are people who even people he grew up with who are not sure of his innocence or like maybe he had something even though there's nothing tying him to the crime um all the forensics they've done the little bit of dna they've testing they the state agreed to do nothing ties him to the crime he had an alibi all these things and he was always just a wonderful human being and he's continued to be but and this was something i wrote to him in a letter and then i put it in the book that you know we're we're observant Muslims and we believe in this prophetic tradition. But in, in our tradition, what we were taught is that God sent all these prophets, all these amazing people to, to, to earth. People didn't believe them. People killed them. So like we, who are we? Like, you know, there are always going to be idiots out there who don't believe right. you and they don't matter. And they, you just have to continue to be who you are. Who and you are. You to be the right, right. person and, and do the right thing. That's amazing. Well, I applaud you, my friend. You have, you. you are an amazing human being. Um, I want to talk about you're also a badass podcaster on a side note. So you have, <laughs> you have, <laughs> I was like, oh, Robbie, can you hire me now? Cause <laughs> so undisclosed over 360 million downloads yeah. and you, so undisclosed is the biggest wrongful conviction podcast in the world, guys. And you guys have exonerated nearly a dozen defendants. So like you're a useful podcast too. Yeah. And I, and I think you mentioned it earlier that you kind of started this because you felt that serial didn't cover and didn't do the case justice. Yeah. There were other lawyers who were listening to serial who were pointing at all the holes and all the things that they were not kind of nailing. And so I teamed up with a couple of them and right. uh, incredible team. Um, and we're like, all right, well, we, we had written thousands of pages of blogs that nobody was reading. <laughs> so we're like, let's just put this in a podcast form. Not knowing what we were doing sounded like crap um, out the gate. And then, and we just wanted, we had no expectation that it would continue after we did right. like 30 or 40 episodes out of Don's case. And then we started getting requests from Innocence Projects to help them and defendants. And we're like, well, all right, maybe we'll do one more case. And then it just kept going. It's been seven years now. That's amazing. So is Undisclosed still going on? Are you guys still doing it? Yeah, I'm in the middle of scripting my season finale. Yeah, as soon as I get off this call, I'm finishing my season finale. And then on a total side note, I interviewed Gia Wirtz. Do you know her? Mm. Okay. I love Gia. She's been so supportive. Yeah, so I interviewed her probably like beginning of the year. We have mutual friends, you know, Brown Connection. She told me, she introduced, I think she actually sent me your email and then Simran did as well. Okay. And so I was like, I don't know. Robbie doesn't know me. I'm going to be a weirdo. But she was like, <laughs> Gia um, was just raving about you. And She's amazing. Anon's family. And I just yeah. wanted to mention that to you. I forgot Thank that you. that's yeah. how the conversation started about you. And then when I interviewed Simran, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll connect to you, whatever. So um, <laughs> Simran's awesome, too. He's oh, my God. So much. For both of them. Both of their interviews were just awesome. Okay. So Undisclosed. Then you did the 45th, which was about the 45th president. Yeah. Thank God that's over. I have to ask, oh my, A, was that like a form of therapy for you? Because I felt like it should be. <laughs> yeah. You know, what happened was, you know, after that election, um, Susan Simpson, who's one of the attorneys from Undisclosed, like, you know, we would just, we would just spend hours texting back and forth and venting and all this stuff. And they were like, you know what, maybe we should just do a weekly talk, but I'll say this. And I, I have to say that was a time that I experienced. I don't even know what like re- what journalists go through day in and day out, but it was literally it bur- it it ki- they killed a part of my soul week after week. And, and there are people who do this every day, journalists who report every day, right. week after week, to be like, "This is what this administration did." Um, and yeah. and the minute it was over, I literally was like, "I I want to have a president that I don't have to be scared of and worried about." And, and yeah, I will not always agree with every single thing, but right. I can check out like, but that it was therapy at first, but then it actually, I think it created a, so much anxiety in me. At least I felt every week I was like, Oh my God. Cause you're like, I can't oh my God. even imagine yeah. as a, an American citizen listening. I yeah. felt like a lot of us went into depression, just even listening to the news. It was, so- it was bad and it was, it's shocking. And you think every week, we were like, and you, you would think, see, that's the thing, like in a normal administration, you're not going to get these huge scandalous stories like every week with this, it was every day. It was every every day. day. And so it was a lot. It was pretty overwhelming. I just was like, I was like, even if he had won the reelection, I was done. I couldn't do this for four more years. The the podcast. Uh, uh, That's another, probably sucked the energy out of you all the time. Yeah, like, I can't even it. imagine for sure. Wow. It. But it was necessary at the time. So I'm glad yeah. we did it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, 
I'm I'm going. I just downloaded uh, b- both podcasts, but I Do wish I had known to about it. it. Save yourself, <laughs> Amy. <laughs> well, I just I gotta see how you do this, man. You are kicking ass. Um, okay, and then the other one I want to talk about the third podcast, and I'm gonna fuck up the name or the pronunciation. The hidden Jin. Dijin? Dijin? J- no, just Jin. Jin. Okay, just Jin. Yeah. So that. I, I believe means spirit or demon or what does it what does it exactly translate to? Yeah, so that podcast I would say definitely listen to the first episode. Um, okay, if, if, and then see how you feel about it. So okay, I have always loved folklore and supernatural stuff and and spiritual stuff. And one of my favorite shows is Lore. Um, and okay. Aaron Mankey is a friend of mine. He produces this show, and I, we became friends after I became a fan. Um, and he he covers all this folklore, and then he goes into the history behind it. And I always asked him, you know, have you thought about going outside of Europe and North America? And he's like, no, I don't feel comfortable. And I was like, God, you know, there's all this mythology and folklore, like literally thousands of years old, about this creature called the jinn. He's like, I know nothing about it. And I said, no, you do. The genie from Robin Will, you know, Robin Williams' genie from um, – what's called uh what's aladdin Aladdin. that's a gin Mm -hmm. that was based on gin and there's actually a lot of pop culture gin references References. now Mm -hmm. so the gin oh my god i'm so dumb gin genie duh okay yeah sorry wow i'm really not that slow i swear no 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 it's fine (laughs) so the understanding of the existence of this creature that's called the gin is actually not just mythology for Muslims, it's literally in our scripture that God God created human beings. He created angels and he created the jinn. It's a a race of beings that are said to be created from a smokeless flame. And when you go back and look into Solomon, uh, writings about King Solomon, which are ancient Jewish writings, the jinn are all over it. So a lot of my sources for this, so it's a really interesting podcast that is a historical it's creepy it was uh, so aaron came to me um you know the guy who does lore and said would you do a thing on on the gin and i thought you know this could be a fun creative project kind of uh take me out of like the legal stuff which is all really heavy and like the the 45th crap um and and so i wrote i researched and wrote 10 episodes um and it was great and the response has been incredible because i actually even have a book right here I've gotten responses from people of every religious and ethnic background saying, "Oh my God, these are this this creature sounds like this creature." Right. And, right. Um, and one of the one of the books that a, an author sent me, he's um uh sorry, he's from Trinidad, Hindu. Yeah. But he said, um, you know, we ha- he wrote a whole book about these creatures that he's like these sound exactly like the jinn. I think it's the same mythology. Totally. It's all it's all tied together, and so that's been so exciting. Like, in, like learning about all these. So it's completely outside. Like, different, what I do different break from what you're what you're used to yeah, doing. Yeah. But, but like, I love, I love spooky stuff. I love, and, I love this because it's yeah. yeah. You're reading about it, connecting the tales yeah. through Islamic, Christian, Jewish, Jewish sources, yeah. and and you just mentioned that. I'm I'm Hindu. Yeah. I guarantee you, in Hinduism, there's something like that. Oh, I talk about Hindu demons that are um, that are under that that are likely jinn in one of the episodes. Totally, yeah. I, I give a whole story about one, uh, a very well known Hindu jinn that was like a vampiric jinn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I this so this would be very. I would love to listen to this as well because it's very. That I think to me. I would I would skip the 45th and go right to the hidden jinn. <laughs> <laughs> I might need to listen to the 45th, like maybe after the 47th president okay. or something. I'll do that. And you know, you've written a ton of. Stuff, articles, blogs, um, yeah. and I, I just want to point out too that I found it super interesting. One is more curiosity. You wrote kind of in a, a letter, maybe to Bill Maher mm. about oh, yeah. his rhetoric on Muslims. Yeah, did he ever publicly respond to that? Okay, no. Bill Maher okay. is one of those cowardly human beings that he only invites people on his show that'll agree with him. He, um, you know, even he loves to talk about Muslims. He will not invite on. Like somebody who is, I want him to invite on somebody like Mehdi Hassan. So Mehdi can tear him a new one, right? Like so, or Wajahat Ali or prominent Muslims who are unapologetic Muslims. He won't. Right. It's, he will invite on the ex-Muslims, the Muslims who are, you know, the ones who were basically their entire careers revolve around trying to detract from, right. from um, the religion and from Muslim communities right. and, and demonize our communities. So uh, he's a total coward. But I think what sucks about Bill Maher is that he's, hailed as like this liberal progressive and yeah. no, he's a bigot man he's a straight up bigot yeah wow you are this, i read that i was like god damn girl i was like <laughs> all right oh i thought it was fantastic so just i didn't see any response from him online i was just wondering There's if he had be, yeah. mentioned anything 
Yeah, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. No. And the other article that I found interesting was a new Muslim renaissance is here. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, this has been fantastic to see. Look, growing up, I yeah. we moved here in 75 and we were first generation immigrants. And, right. um, you know, like we were talking about earlier, everybody was going to be a, an engineer or a doctor or maybe going to business, IT maybe. Like, that was Not it. if Those you are... got to see an organic chem. Just throwing it out there, guys. Same. It happens. Same, it. same, it's yeah. It's really hard, Robbie. It's really hard. The MCAT really derailed my medical dreams. Um, <laughs> but I landed where I was supposed to land, and we all do. Um, yes. But now, yeah, because what's happening is you're seeing Muslim filmmakers, you're seeing women who wear hijab, like, getting nominated for awards for actual films they've made. Um, you see Muslims, I mean, like, you know, look at MSNBC, you've got Ali Valshi, you've got Wajah, you've got uh, Maddie, they have like three or four Muslim anchors. Um, so you have all these Muslim journalists, you have Muslim creatives, you have uh, right. Muslim comedians, people in TV and film. And, you know, that's how it should be. Um, yeah. And I, and I just seeing this increased representation is not just a sign that, um, it's, it doesn't just say something about our society, but it says something about our community that yeah. we also, as the generations go on, the parents are more comfortable or the kids, kids are more yeah. empowered to decide right. this is what I want to do. Right. right. Like, I've never had a conversation with my 13 year old where I'm like, well, you're going to, you're going to do X, Y, Z. She's like, yeah. mm, this I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Right. It's just a different time. It's just a different, our, our parents, good. I don't think our parents had the opportunity yeah. or they weren't able yeah. to do that, you yeah. know, when they got here. I mean, so. there's a profile of a, of a young, um, a Muslim journalist, um, in Playboy, right. She was on the cover. There was, you see Muslim women on the runway in beauty and all. I mean, like in it's, it's so it's yeah. I'm just happy to see um, have all these different representations for our kids and to know yeah. that our community is expanding. This is a brown. This is, brown is out there. Brown, yeah. We're brown is happen. Out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I gotta tell you, Muslims, man, your community, you guys are good looking people. So I'm glad. <laughs> I'm, glad I'm glad your faces are out there. So <laughs> listen, Indians aren't too shabby themselves. Okay. Yeah, we try. Like, we're, all we obsessed, try. we're all obsessed with Bollywood. And I <laughs> listen. I so my um my executive producer, her name is Meetal Delhan. We're very good. We're old friends, and I yeah. love her. She's from Gujarat, India. And Gujarat, I told her, whoop, whoop. are you Gujarati? I'm Gujarati. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Man, Dhokla. Oh, I love it. Um, I'm <laughs> Come Punjabi. over, Rabia. I can do it. I can make, I make Dhokla. I make her aloo parathas and she sends me things like Khanvi and Dhokla. I see. Um, and Tepla and stuff like that. Oh so, my God, Tepla is the best. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Give me all the carbs. All like, the I'll, like I'll carry that shit in the plane. <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, okay, here's my snacks for my kids. I don't care Why if it smells. Why not? <laughs> It smells great. I know. It's so to hell with everybody. So yeah, I've told her that, you know, one of my dreams, dream projects is to one day, you know, cr produce some cross border podcasts and media um, with people from back home, not like us here, but like with, yeah. because, you know, things are, it sucks how, how our countries, um, I think for political reasons are always like at odds with each other. And right. Uh, and it's scary to see. That would be amazing. I would yeah. totally be on your team. I'll even give you chai. Let me know when you do it. I think <laughs> that's such you. a, that'd be a great, that's a yeah. fantastic idea. Do yeah. It. I would love to do it. I'm always horrified, horrified. This, just this past week, there was a Hindu, um, man, a, a Hindu man who was brutally murdered by a mob of crazy Muslim fanatics in, in Pakistan. You know, the same kind of stuff happens in right. India against right. Muslims and minorities are just, uh, under siege in both countries. And I, and it's such a shame. We've had hundreds of years of history together. So yeah, it's just, yeah. it's, it's ongoing. It's not stopping the cycle, all that stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's up to us now, you know, it's, it's our time to make this, make the narrative change, yeah. you know, yeah. talk about it. So yes, hire me. I'll get, I'll be your Jaiwala. I will be in touch. I'll when like it you up, <laughs> give you a neck massage, whatever you want. <laughs> okay. You are publishing a second book. Yeah. Fatty, fatty, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. So this is completely... Another departure. Another totally different topic. It's a memoir on food, fat, and family. Yeah. How, yeah. how did this happen? Well, it happened because at the minute Adnan's story was published, my publisher was like, we want another book. We want another book. And I was like, first of all, I need a break. But the second <laughs> yeah. thing was, 
Um, Adnan's book was incredibly research heavy. Like I went day by day by day through the investigation, which means thousands of case files that I have to make sure I don't get anything wrong, fact checking, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was like, I don't have it in me to do something like that without a research assistant or without something like that. Right. But this is something that I've been asked to write about by others over, over the, because people who know me closely always know that like, you know, I'm on keto. Now I'm on South Beach. Now I'm trying this. And I grew up with this very kind of like my big fat Greek wedding family where they're right. always like worried about like, who's going to marry you? You're yeah, yeah. 25 pounds overweight. Hey, welcome to being brown. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I, and it doesn't matter what you achieve. It's like, you've gained weight. I see. How do you <laughs> look? Right. Yeah. right. Right. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, look, Muslims, like my family, we don't drink or we don't party. All we do is eat. I mean, like so everything we do, everything we do revolves around food. It's the way yeah. how we socialize and entertain ourselves. And at yeah. the same time, you want me to lose weight. Um, I'm also a pretty good cook. And so I was like, you know what? I can write a memoir like on this topic because it has been like, there's never been a time. It's not it's been, been part of your narrative life. since day part one. Of my life. Yeah. Right. Since, right. Since infancy, since infancy. Yeah, so totally. That's how, so and fatty, fatty boom, boom was one of my many childhood nicknames. <laughs> so, that's ama- I mean, amazing as in like, it's just so it's kind of cute and catchy. <laughs> it's a fun title. Yeah. 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 It's Does it make you cringe? No. No, okay. I mean because the thing is, like, the, the I mean, cousin, well, you're owning it now because it's a book, yeah. that's the title no, of your book. So, but but even then, you know, the cousin who the, who bestowed this particular one on me, it was out of affection and love. I know, and I know we live in a different time now where everything is like has to be labeled like, okay, well, this is an, a microaggression and this is this. And this. But yeah. honestly, none of it affected me like that at the t- in my childhood. Yeah, it was only when I was an adult and. And then like my ex-husband and my ex-in-laws, like those people made me feel like crap about how I look. That's what was hard and traumatic. Um, But in childhood, I was just like, whatever. I want a cookie. (laughs) I I look fine. Guess what? I still want a damn cookie. So it's fine. It is what it is. That's awesome. So that comes out this year? Next. Nick comes on no next fall and it's got some some of my favorite recipes in it. And uh, so I hope people enjoy it. That's awesome. Man, girl, you are covering all topics. Okay, anything else currently that you're working? I mean, I feel like you have 8,000 things. I don't know how you're standing up. Like, how do you, do you sleep? I'm a very good manager of time. Good I do. You. Yeah, I'm a very good manager of time. And well, also, you, just, I, you, just, you just face out your kids very well. So I know. I can, I can that was not planned, but, uh, <laughs> but it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there, we, there are some. As soon as um, there, there are some other projects that are okay. right now being discussed. Um, there are things that I still want to talk about and write about. And, and my problem is, I'm one of those people. I have a million things in my head. I have a list of ideas that I need to make happen. Oh, I and, can tell. But you know, um, part of that, I think, for the rest of my life, will always be innocence work. And actually, yeah. this uh, new fellowship that I just was so lucky to get awarded the Aspen Fellowship. It's like a yes. three-year fellowship. And we're developing a venture. We have to develop these projects that'll come out of it. And my project's going to be around innocence work. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. It's the Aspen Institute ADL Civil Society Fellow. Is that yep. what it is? Yep, okay. That's it. I know. I have my whole, I have my whole paragraph of fellow and uh, fellowships and honors. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very well prepared. <laughs> Girl. Well, look, I, and I'm not saying this because you're sitting in front of me. I, you're busy. Um, we don't know each other. Right. And you yeah. didn't have to say yes to this. And so oh. I want you to know, I really appreciate you are supporting this podcast by coming on mm-hmm. and that's a big deal to me. And well, thank so, you so much. I, I really want to say thank you. Well, I appreciate you having me on and, and, and I appreciate everybody who wants to continue to talk about Adnan's case and all this yeah. other work. So it's important. You know, me. it's funny because part of me was like when we if I was researching and I was like, I don't want to bombard her and just talk about Adnan. I mean, because my podcast really is about you and your journey. Yeah. Obviously, his case was a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. But I also was like, how much do I, what do I, I want to balance it out to make sure it's not all about it. Yeah. But also look, you live through it, you know, like you li- are living through it. Yeah. I, 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 if you get me started, I could talk about Adnan's case for three days straight. I really could. <laughs> well, let's do a separate podcast on it when you're ready. Okay. Like I'd be happy to. Listen, how about this? I'll come back when he gets out. Done. All right. I will come. You know what, girl? Because I started doing live podcasts. I will come to you live with all my equipment and we will <laughs> sit down good. and yeah. put some makeup on and do it live. We'll we do can that. do that. We can do that. Yeah. I'm not too far from you for sure. Yeah, no. It's one train ride. One train ride. No, I really, no, I, I do. I, I, your time is precious. So thank you for supporting the podcast. It's a big deal. You're the, you're my finale for the year. Oh my God. I'm very and honored. So, thank yeah, you so much. You were, I, when you said yes to me three months ago, I think I peed in my pants a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
Wow, what an episode to close out this year. You guys, please follow Rabia by checking out her website, rabiachaudhry.com, R-A-B-I-A-C-H-A-U-D-R-Y.com. She is doing some amazing things. Her new book, Fatty Fatty Boom Boom, comes out next year. A memoir on food, fat, and family, which is something, you know, we can all relate to. As always, you can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast, tuckeredoutwithami.com. And this is it, number 75, end of the year. You know, not to get all emotional, but this year has been a year of tremendous growth for Tuckered Out. And I could not have done it without you guys. So a big thank you. Lots of good things happening in 2022. So stick with me, guys. We're going to have some fun. I hope you guys have a great holiday break, a safe New Year's. I will see you in 2022. This is Tuckered Out.